Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Yasha Monk. Yasha is a German-born political scientist, author, and lecturer known for his research on the rise of populism and the challenges to liberal democracy. He has authored several influential books, including Stranger in My Own Country, The People vs. Democracy, and his new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. A few episodes ago, I had Christopher Rufo on the podcast to discuss his analysis of why wokeness came to dominate so many institutions. Yasha's asking the same question in this book, but he's coming to a different answer. Yasha focuses less on people like Herbert Marcuse and more on intellectuals like Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Derek Bell, and Kimberly Crenshaw. We also talk about why there are so many former Marxists in the writing world, but so few people who convert into Marxism later in life. We talk about how Foucault's critique of language differs from George Orwell's critique of language, and much more. I really recommend getting a physical copy of his book because of its complexity and just sitting down with it. It's really one of those books that's important to actually read rather than listen to a conversation. In any event, without further ado, Yasha Monk. Okay, Yasha Monk. Thanks so much for coming back on my show. I'm looking forward to coming. Okay, so we're here to talk about your new book, The Identity Trap. It's a great book. It's broadly about a topic I cover a lot on this podcast, which is, you know, the evolution of the ideology that has become very popular on the left in the past several decades that goes by many different names, uh, wokeness, identity politics, etc. But your book has a, a really, a really deep and I think interesting sort of history of ideas about how we came to be here. And I just had Chris Rufo on my podcast, who has a different story. So my sort of my most loyal listeners will have just heard a kind of different version of this story from Rufo. And we'll get to his account in a bit. But before we do that, can you kind of uh, tell my audience why you came to care about this particular uh, set of ideas and how it links up with your previous books, which were one one of which was about you know kind of right wing populism and democracy, and the, the other was a, more about you know how diverse democracies can su- succeed. So how did you come to this new book? Yeah, so as you're saying, I'm sort of a democracy crisis hipster, so I was worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool, um, before Donald Trump was elected, and all of those things. And, you know, so I worry a lot about threats to the basic liberal institutions that I think sustain a country like the United States and make it, despite all of its real flaws, a great place to live. A lot of the threats to that do come from the far right and from authoritarians like Donald Trump or Narendra Modi in India and Recep Erdogan in Turkey and all of those kinds of figures. And that's definitely one of the things that I continue to be concerned about. I just wrote an article a few days ago about uh, the upcoming Polish elections and the way in which the sort of authoritarian populist government there has eroded democratic institutions and is likely to destroy them if it gets reelected. But I came to worry about some of these developments that you chronicle so well on this podcast and in other writings uh, for a number of reasons. 
One is that uh, I care about beating those kind of right-wing populists. And I think when mainstream institutions uh, are increasingly captured by an irrational ideology that is deeply unpopular, uh, when a lot of people lose trust in what people say on TV and what you know what decisions uh, government officials make and 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 how uh, the other political alternatives are going to govern because of the hold that these ideas have over our social life that actually empowers those figures on the right. So even though they are quite different in the nature of their ideas, one is the yin to the other's yang. Uh, and then I care about these ideas because I think the stakes are significant in themselves. You know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an academic and a writer. I care about the kind of ideas that are governing our public sphere, our social life, our universities. And when there's a new ideology that has been adopted at incredibly rapid pace without people really interrogating it in a serious way, with an amazing daft of serious uh, earnest engagement with those ideas, then, then, then that's concerning in itself. And it's particularly concerning when I think it's inspiring all kinds of destructive uh, norms and habits uh, and customs in our schools, in our universities, in our corporations. To give one example, many elite private schools in the country now have uh, teachers come in in first grade, second grade, and divide kids up by race. Say, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And by the way, if you're white, you go over there. And then they try and teach those people, as the name of one uh, particularly influential organization puts it, to embrace race, to think of themselves as racial beings, to double down for the white kids on their white identity, to own the whiteness. Now, the goal of that is to build a more tolerant society where we're going to fight against injustice. The goal of that is to, to, to inspire anti-racists. I think it's much more likely to lead to zero-sum conflict in the heart of our society and to uh, inspire people to be uh, racist or white supremacists rather than anti-racists. So I think that these things have important stakes in their own terms as well. I think the difference between the threat from the right and the threat from the left at least among my network and the people I've known in my life, is that the threat from the right is generally more obvious to most people. And again, that's a statement relative to my own situation, having grown up in a blue area, having lived in and around New York City my whole life. The threat from the right, the threat from racism is a wolf in wolf's clothing. The threat from you know separating kids by race with the aim of teaching them to quote unquote embrace race that is a lot more confusing to people because some people, I think some people fall for what you would call the identity trap in your book. They fall for the trap of believing that this is the way to fight racism. This is um, the way to stand up to bigotry on the right. And so that's why I spend more time critiquing it. Yeah. And, and that's why I call it a trap, by the way. I thought really hard about what to name this book. And I think the identity trap is the right name because it's about all of these new ideas about identity. And I'm sure we'll get into detail with them. But it's a trap because a trap has something attractive. It has a lure, right? It's saying, hey, this is the most radical, the most principled, the most uncompromising way to fight against things that really are problem, against racism and homophobia and discrimination and against all of those kinds of things. That is what lures people in. But part of a trap is also that once you, you know, see a piece of cheese and you, you, you go towards it, you're going to be trapped, right? The outcome is going to be bad for you. Uh, and in this case, I think it's also going to be bad for society. Now, part of it is this political trap that a lot of progressive organizations have torn themselves apart because of their internal meltdowns, making it harder for them to sustain their missions. 
that you know when you encourage people to embrace race, you might be trying to build a more tolerant society, but actually you might build a zero-sum conflict in which precisely the historically dominant continue to win out. You might think that this is the most radical way to oppose Trump, but actually you're going to make it easier for him to win again in 2024. Um, it's also a personal trap in important ways, I think. You know, I think it's true that most people, not everybody perhaps, but nearly everybody, seeks a form of recognition. They want a form of respect in society. They want to feel seen in society. And of course, in a society that says, if you're you know, a member of this group, you're inferior somehow, or we have these terrible views about who you are, that's going to be hard to do. So of course, we need to oppose those forms of people being deprecated. But I think it's a mistake to seek that form of recognition by really thinking of yourself in terms of your particular intersection of identities. Because when we want to feel seen in society, it's also as individuals. It's as people with idiosyncratic tastes, uh, the way we make a joke, the, 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 the kind of preferences we have, the things we value. One of the ways to think about that is that your sibling might have very similar intersection of identities than you do. But you want to be seen as separate from your sibling because you're not your sibling, because what makes you you is also what sets you apart from your sibling. And so I think it's not just a political trap, actually. It's a personal trap as well. It, it inspires people to seek that recognition that we desperately need in, 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 in forms of reductive self-descriptions that actually will never quite satisfy them. Yeah, so autobiographically, I graduated high school and entered college right at the time where these kinds of racial separatist you know, rituals were going on. So I, I had one at my high school probably around 2013, 14. And in my orientation at Columbia University, there was another one. And and I, re I remember at by the time of my orientation at Columbia, I think I was already kind of searching for criticisms of my milieu. And I didn't really know how to find them necessarily. I was I was listening to podcasts and so forth. And but I, I do recall being asked to go to one side of a classroom, the the black corner. And of course, I'm a half black, half Hispanic. So it's inherently ambiguous which I would choose. But for whatever reason, I choose I chose the black corner. And I, I, I remember, I mean, the intention of this experience was presumably good. But the effect was to make me feel more acutely aware of my race, which I was not going into that classroom, right? Going into that classroom, I, I figured it's my first week at college. I hope I make friends. You know, this is an, anx an anxiety-inducing situation in the sense that you're in a new environment. You, you want to fit in. You want to see, you know, get a friend group and so forth. You were used to the cool kids at Juilliard and you had to figure out how to get on with the squares at Columbia. So, so there was, was nerve-wracking. I was used to the mean streets of Juilliard. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, and after that, I felt, well, okay, this is pigeon pigeonholing me as the black student. And I wonder if other students are going to now look at me and, and see my blackness as a bigger feature of my identity simply as, as a result of this exercise, which is not something that I wanted. I wanted them to get to know me as individuals. So, you know, this, this struck me as a very strange exercise. And, and there's a very strange feeling in the room when we're all being asked to do it, because I'm not sure anyone wanted to do it. 
But of course, nobody felt comfortable pushing back against it. No yeah. one was going to be that contrarian. It would be like getting up on a church pulpit on Sunday morning and saying, hey, actually, guys, have you considered God doesn't exist? Right. Hail so, Satan. Yeah. yeah. No one wants to be that. No one has the Larry David-esque quality to just, you know, do that all the time. If only we could always have a pocket Larry David with us. What, 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 you, what you're saying is exactly the two ways in which I think this, this is a personal trap. One of which is um, you may not self-define in that kind of way, right? You may say, hey, the most important thing about me is not that I'm a racial being. But may, it may be a fact that you're seen in a particular way as part of an ethnicity and that has certain forms of social relevance. I don't think either of us would deny that. But your, your deep self-identification deep down is not my ethnicity, that's what really defines who I am. And yet in that situation, you're required to make that the primary thing about you in a kind of self-affirming way, right? Like you have to walk to that corner and that does violence to, to how you think about who you are, right? I, I, I don't define in the first instance as somebody who's white or somebody who's Jewish. Those are true facts about me. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that mediates my social standing in certain ways, but it is not something where I'm like, what really defines me is that I'm white. No. The, the other important point here is that inevitably a society which always bases its treatment of people on the group to which they belong is going to spell trouble for people whose membership in those groups is somehow ambiguous, right? So in your case, well, do I go to the black corner? Do I go to the Latino corner? And, you know, one of the examples, you know, in, in the book, I give a lot of examples of what's going on and it's not a cancel culture book. It's not people, you know, it's not the famous stories and so on. And I, I try to make each of those stories uh, do philosophical work and really illustrate something. But one of the stories I was really shocked by is of a, a former student of mine who was an intern at the Art Museum of an Ivy League university uh, during the pandemic. And they asked all of the students, uh, all of the interns to recreate an artwork from the collection because people couldn't go in person to look at the art. And so she, her mother is, is, is a Chinese immigrant. She thinks of herself as Asian American, grew up in the United States, and she recreated the self-portrait of this Asian artist and her mother. That's a kind of comment on beauty standards or something like that. And she sent that into the, the museum, the director, beautiful, you've done this beautifully, you know, it'll go up on the website in a couple of days. And the curator of the museum was Asian American said, this is completely impossible. Uh, you've uh, committed cultural appropriation how dare you do this? You've done something very bad. And just, it must be a misunderstanding. My mom is Chinese. What are you talking about? It's like, yeah, but your, your dad is not. Your dad is not Chinese. And I think you, he was neither white nor Asian. And so therefore you you had no right to do this. So this, 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 this Ivy League University was applying a racial purity test on whether its student was allowed to create this artwork, whether she was sufficiently Chinese, even though her mother is Chinese and she thought of herself as Chinese American, but she was insufficiently racially pure to be uh, treated with respect in that situation. And there's something about, you know, when you really make society, make its treatment of you depend on the group to which you belong, there's always going to be the question of, okay, so how do we define who's a member of that group and not? And for people who have complicated identities, that ironically, despite all of the emphasis on intersectionality, is always going to create a problem. Okay, so before we get into the specific story you tell, I want to address a concern right off the bat, which is this stuff is all marginal. It's like one girl in college trying to submit an art piece. It's a new story there, you know, a cherry-picked story here. It's not mainstream enough to be worth worrying about or or writing a book about? How do you address that? 
Well, in two ways. First of all, I teach this stuff at college and my students are great. They they want to engage with this stuff. They're grateful to have a space when they engage with this stuff. And I don't indoctrinate them in, in the classroom. I, I, I assign readings that broadly agree with, with my point of view. I, read, I, I assign some of your texts sometimes, actually. But I also assign things that are very much on the other side. I assign Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. In fact, I would not be able to teach some of my classes at a public university in Florida because there you're not supposed to teach critical race theory and identity politics. And I teach papers that clearly are out of that tradition and defend that. I want my students to be able to think critically about these things and make up their own mind. I tell them at the beginning of class, I want you to change your mind about something. I don't care in which direction you're going to change it. But the bottom line assumptions that these smart, open-minded students have are deeply steeped in this tradition. They haven't heard the counter-arguments in their education. That is how deeply the most influential people in America, uh, which they're going to be in 10 or 20 or 30 years, are now being shaped as part of that tradition. So that's not marginal. But there's also really clear cases of this having uh, influence on public policies with extremely high stakes. For me, the most important, the most shocking was the way in which the United States rolled out vaccines uh, in 2020. One, the key advisory committee to the Centers for Disease Control uh, called ACIP considered, you know, we, we have these amazing life-saving vaccines. There's very few of them. What are we going to do? Virtually every country in the world did it by age. They, they gave some allocations to doctors because you needed hospitals to be staffed. And then they basically said over 85s, over 80s, over 75s, etc., going down the list. This advisory committee said, even though that has huge practical benefits, much easier to do, uh, we're not going to do it. That would be unethical because a disproportionate number of older Americans are white. And even for according to our own causal models, deviating from this model is going to increase the number of deaths by between 0.5 and 6.5%. Could lead to thousands more people dying. That would be the wrong ethical thing to do. And so instead they recommended putting essential workers who uh, supposedly are more diverse first. Now, a couple of things happened from that. One is that it's really hard to communicate who's an essential worker. And immediately the politicking started about being included as essential workers. Film crews were essential workers. Finance executives were essential workers. I was an essential worker. Baristas and bank tellers, I think, were as well, right? Yeah. And I was an essential worker as a college professor in Maryland because I was supposedly in the classroom at a time when I was not allowed to teach classes in person, right? Then what happened is that you had way too many people eligible for the vaccine at a time when there was barely any appointments. So who got the appointments? Well, we were all competing for them, refreshing websites, but the people who were able to do that for hours a day or who could write little computer programs to find eligible spots or who were able to drive hours out of town in order to get to some rural pharmacy that had more capacity for some random reason, they were the ones to get it. In other words, more privileged people who probably were at slightly less risk to health. And most importantly, uh, I suspect that this policy even killed more non-white people. Because if you give uh, a vaccine to two 25-year-old black Uber drivers rather than one 80-year-old black retiree, more black people are going to die. This is how heavily this disease skews towards older people. So here's a policy that is, is a life or death question is capable of inspiring just the worst kind of zero-sum racial competition in our politics and can easily be exploited by the political right uh, to empower people like Donald Trump. So is that a trivial example? I, I, I don't think it's trivial. 
So um, it, it's worth uh, just reminding people that thankfully there was last minute outcry about that policy and it didn't actually get implemented, right? No, Is it did right? partially get implemented. So the, the, the advisory committee wanted to make it just about essential workers, if I recall this right at the moment. There was pushback against it uh, from, 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 I think, Matt Iglesias and me and a bunch of others. And in the end, uh, it was state by state. Most states adopted a mix of essential workers and elderly people. So that old elderly people were eligible, but so were all of these essential workers. And since it was really, really hard to get actual appointments, it did mean that a lot of healthy young people who were not at particular risk from the pandemic ended up getting those vaccines before the elderly whose life would have been saved. Okay, so... Let's go right to the story that you tell about how it is that identity politics or wokeness uh, has come to predominate in culture. And I guess one last thing would just be the language that you choose here. Identity politics and wokeness, these are both terms that have been um, kind of beat to death. And in some way, that's a natural effect of them being so important is that we have to have names for things. And when things are on people's minds, the names for those things just end up getting... Uh, repeated over and over. And when they're contested philosophies, it becomes especially fraught because what happens is there there is like an excess of some ideology and then there's a backlash to it and the backlash itself has an excess. And the people that subscribe to the philosophy, they don't always want to take on all the baggage associated with the word, but also the people that criticize it don't want to take all the baggage of the critics. And you get this dance of everyone distancing themselves from every kind of word, right? The woke will distance themselves from the word wokeness. Uh, Anti-woke will distance themselves from anti-wokeness. Uh, and and it's all understandable in terms of the signaling dynamics at play. Um, but it makes the conversations a bit harder. You have this new term, identity synthesis, that I really like. Why have you chosen that? And what is this ideology a synthesis of? A few words. I mean, one is that what you're describing certainly happens, but it's somewhat unusual, right? There's lots of very controversial terms or very controversial ideologies for which the term is not controversial. Marxist. Socialism. Yeah, Marxism, socialism. But there's like, some people love socialism, some people hate socialism, but the people who love and hate socialism agree to call the thing we're talking about socialism, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I think Freddie Boer said, look, just, just, just tell me what on earth you want me to call this ideology that is reshaping our social reality. I'll call it whatever you want me to call it. I don't really care. But we need to have a term that allows us to talk and debate about it in the way that we can talk and debate about socialism by using that term. And I think, I think there's an article by Dan Hitchens where he just called it The Thing. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> the article is just called The Thing. Let's just call it the thing. It's called the thing. So I sort of, you know, for the purposes of this book, you know, this book really is trying to be the most level-headed and comprehensive explanation of what this ideology is. And obviously, as you can tell at this point, I'm critical of the ideology, but I really, this is not a polemical book. I'm trying to take the idea seriously. And, and the intellectual history, which I think we're getting to, contains lots of people who are smart, sophisticated thinkers, with whom I have some fundamental disagreements, but who are people I enjoyed reading and, and, and learning from. So, you know, in order to write that book, I wanted a term that at least for these purposes, people who are critical of it and people who are supportive of it could kind of recognize as the thing, as the term that references the thing. So why the identity synthesis? Well, first of all, because these ideas are fundamentally about 
forms of group identity, about race and gender and sexual orientation. Fundamentally, they're saying these are the, the most important categories for which to understand and think about the world, and they should be what political activism is based on, and actually they should be in many ways what our social institutions uh, and policies revolve around, right? So obviously identity is straightforward. I mean, synthesis, because I actually think that in its current form, this ideology is a surprising synthesis are three different intellectual traditions, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. And if you actually go through each of those traditions and the main thinkers and their main concerns, the sort of six or seven themes that dominate in the United States in 2023 in progressive circles really emerge. Uh, and so we, we've synthesized these different traditions to crystallize the ideology as it stands now. From what it seems to me, your synthesis really includes basically Foucault, Said, and I, I don't know, Gayatri Spivak, Derek Bell, and Kimberly Crenshaw, roughly those five. Yeah. And of course, you can always add other figures in that tradition. And I, I really read very, very broadly in order to write this book. I'm trained as an intellectual historian originally. Um, but I think these are the ones that most meaningfully contributed to this tradition. Okay. Let's begin with Foucault. What Strip down to as few ideas as possible, ideally one or two. What is Foucault all about and what, what, how does he contribute to this synthesis? Yeah, the start, you know, there's a little bit of a subtext here, which you mentioned, and I'm sure we'll, we'll go into it in more detail. Of, you know, a lot of the right says this is just cultural Marxism, right? And that's what somebody like Chris Rufo argues. I think that makes it very hard to see um, how influential Foucault is on this entire tradition. And once you realize that, you realize it must be more complicated than cultural Marxism because Foucault himself rejected Marxism. And that's really a lot of what founds his philosophy. He was a member of the French Communist Party from 1950 to 1953, which was a Marxist political party, basically listening to Moscow's political directives. But he he hated the party. He had terrible experiences in it. And, and to his honor, he left it in 1953 in part because the party blamed uh, a conspiracy theory by by uh, a conspiracy by Jewish doctors uh, uh, for, 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 for the death of Joseph Stalin. And in an intellectual milieu where Everybody's Marxist, and it's kind of politically incorrect not to be Marxist. Jean-Paul Sartre, the most influential uh, Parisian intellectual, is a Marxist. Foucault rejects what he calls grand narratives, these big attempts to structure our understanding of the world and think that it has some kind of directive purpose, that once you've really analyzed the world in the right kind of way, you really get the main driving forces of it, and you know, you see where it is leading. And one of those key grand narratives was Marxism with its predictions about how the proletariat was going to stage a revolution, bring about socialism, so on and so forth. Another key ideology was liberalism, right? The basic principles of liberal democracy, the idea that if we live up to, in our context, the, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution in the French context, the uh, you know, values of the French Revolution, that is going to create a better and more humane world. Foucault also rejects that. So from the beginning, he has a very deep skepticism about any form of truth claim that claims to be neutral or universal, and about political values that claim to be superior to others. So that deep skepticism uh, about truth and objective truth is, is the first big contribution he makes. The second big contribution is that he changes how we think about political power. Now, you ask a smart high schooler what political power is, they'll say something like, you know, there's laws and there's a state and there's a police force and they exercise power. 
over the society. And perhaps in some complicated way that power derives from us for people through elections, right? But it's a pretty top-down thing. Foucault says, no, 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 that's not the most important form of political power. The most important form of political power comes from these discourses, from the way we think about and conceptualize the world. What's truly important is uh, how we have this conversation with podcast and how that constrains the kind of possible moves that people can make in thinking about the world. So power is much more diffuse and it's omnipresent in those kinds of ways. And that made Foucault quite skeptical about the possibility to bring about uh, improvements because you might fight against one kind of oppressive discourse, but then, you know, that might give you a second of freedom, but then the discourse is going to reconstitute itself and the new discourse is probably going to be just as oppressive as the one that came before. Yeah. So, I mean, Foucault is interesting because he his skepticism about moral progress really cuts directly against the militant activism of, of many people that were later inspired by him. And what will, your, your reason your account is so great is because it explains how you get from a truly skeptical postmodern view, wherein every, you know, every quote unquote meta narrative like Marxism or classical liberalism, enlightenment, humanism, even probably intersectionality are wrong, how you get from that to a new meta narrative that claims Foucault as its as one of its forefathers. Before I get there, I had this question inspired by reading your book and you know the fact that Foucault is a former Marxist. In my reading of so many different strains of things, I've just there's so many people that are former Marxists, right? And I, I compiled the list. So you have Thomas Sowell, former Marxist, Christopher Hitchens, uh, arguably a former Marxist. Peter Hitchens, uh, Bayard Rustin are arguable in that case, but um, I would argue. Uh, Eugene Genovese, the great uh, historian of slavery. Apparently Tony Blair, which I didn't know. Eldridge Cleaver, um, the the uh, Black Panther. Salvador Dali, apparently. All of these people, former Marxists, Marxists in their, you know, often their 20s and 30s, and then uh, they come out of it. What you don't see is really the reverse. You don't see very many people that were not Marxists in their 20s and 30s, and then in their 40s and 50s read Das Kapital and said, oh, this, this actually, this guy is a point. Why is that? Why do you see so many former Marxists, but you so rarely see the reverse? That's an interesting question. Or is that just like an, a, a feature of the particular time in history that all of these... That's what I'm wondering about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of both, right? So part of it is certainly political context. The Unlike the movement of young progressives today, the student movement of the 1960s really was very deeply Marxist. Not everybody was Marxist, there was debates, you know, some people were Maoist, which is arguably, you know, whatever. There's sort of complicated interesting things, but, but the basic thrust of a lot of the student movement in the United States and certainly in, in France and in Germany in the 1960s was Marxist. And so part of what you're picking up on is that in the biography of many of those people, they were young in the 60s when those were just sort of the dominant ideas. And then they started to think about the world and saw some of the uh, limitations of, of, of this ideology, saw the way in which the Soviet Union was becoming less and less and less attractive like every other communist society in the Eastern Bloc. And so they, 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 they finally fell out of it. But, you know, when you read a book like The Captive Mind by Czesław Milos, he's telling a story of Polish society in the years after the Soviet Union occupies it and uh, uses its political might to install the Polish communist power 
uh, and put it in charge. And there you have a story of grown intellectuals embracing Marxism because that's what it takes to get to the program in that society. Um, so there's strong political pressure to become a Marxist and then people become Marxist in that kind of context. So I think there's certainly examples of that. But I do think that there is perhaps something more fundamental as well. What, what Marxism gives you, and that is a similarity, I think, to the identity synthesis, is a way of learning one set of ideas and feeling superior to everybody else in your social circle, right? Reality is complicated and messy and it's hard to have debates about it. It's hard to have real insights into it. But you learn the basic categories of Marxism and you say, oh, you're talking about this movie in these terms. Actually, it's all about the class relations because this guy is a worker and this guy is a whatever, right? Oh, you're talking about, you know, what's happened in Italy yesterday. Well, really, we have to think about the categories of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, et cetera. And then you'll understand the true world historical significance of this particular development, right? And it's very appealing because it gives intellectuals free things. It gives you guidance in the world. It makes you feel superior to others, Right if you have speak the language and others don't, you're like, I understand what's going on. I've lifted the veil from the world and you little idiot still haven't. And you feel part of this world historical movement, right? Like you're part of fighting for the eventual revolution and the advent of this beautiful world. And that's very attractive and it's very attractive to intellectuals and it's very attractive to young people in particular, perhaps. Lots of people then stay with that for a lifetime. Uh, but I think if you're a really thoughtful person, if you're a critical person, you also start to get a little bit bored of that. It gives you all the answers, but precisely because it gives you all the answers, the answers are often wrong and the answers are often boring. And so perhaps once you've moved through that phase, you start to see, oh, you know, it doesn't quite seem to add up in this case. And perhaps I'll stay a good comrade and continue to talk in these terms in an unthinking way. Or perhaps I'll start to revise how I see the world. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to the idea that if you were an intellectual in the first half or middle of the 20th century, being an intellectual was almost synonymous with being a Marxist in the sense that it was the water in which one swam until one discovered other things, maybe. And to that end, it, you know, do you envision a possibility 50 years from now where similar to how there's a Wikipedia page just full of former Marxists, which I discovered preparing for this podcast, will there be a Wikipedia page full of former, let's say, intersectionalists or identity synthesis adherents? Yeah, you know, it's funny uh, that you say it's like sort of the water you swim in, but it's nearly precisely what Jean-Paul Sartre said at some point about Marxism, uh, which he believed in, right? In a good way, he said, but, you know, that's the only real way to live in our time. Uh, I think that's possible. And certainly there are people, you know, Ibu Patel has written, I think, very movingly about how some of these ideas of the identity synthesis gave him guidance in college, allowed him to understand some of the experiences of discrimination that he'd experienced uh, growing up in the Midwest in the 1980s, and how he became a real fervent believer in it because it gave him all the answers. And when he describes how he, he had this theater studies professor with whom he was doing an independent study, and he went to see a play that she'd put on, she was a black woman, it was very progressive and so on. And at the talkback session afterwards, he said, you know, this play is colonial and racist because all of the kids have their own rooms. You know, what about families where every kid doesn't have their own room? And this, this professor very graciously emailed him and said, look, thanks for your criticism, but, you know, it's easy to criticize, it's hard to build. Um, why don't you try to do something better? And Ibu really, there was a, change, a moment that changed his life. He thought, wow, yeah, perhaps I don't want to just be the person tearing stuff down. Um, and he now is a, is a real critic of this kind of ideology. And so I think perhaps there we see a similar movement, right, where, where these categories of the identity synthesis allowed him 
to to see the world and revealed some interesting things about him, but also oversimplified it and made him, you know, the only thing he saw in the play was, you know, the injustice of not representing children who don't have their own room. And when he realized the limitation of that, it allowed him to move beyond that. So perhaps there's a sort of similarity there. But one thing I will say is that, you know, in the 60s, you had these Marxist students arguing for some things that were horrendous. Students at my school in Munich uh, went down the main street of Munich shouting, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Lenin. Uh, if we recreated West Germany after the 60s in the image of Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara and Lenin, that would have been a much, much, much worse society. And they're also fighting for some good things like sexual liberation and more tolerance for sexual minorities and so on. Right? The good stuff won out on the whole and the bad stuff lost. But that's because there was an establishment that, that was speaking up against them and standing against them. And over time, through that clash, the good ideas could win out because more and more people were converted to them. But the bad ideas were also stopped by people saying, hang on a second, this is a terrible idea. So I don't think this is an automatism, right? We might come out of this moment and some of the good ideas uh, about identity in the last years might in fact make us see certain injustices more acutely. That's only going to happen if we actually have a serious intellectual engagement with them and there's people who are self-confident enough to say, hey, I think these ideas are wrong-headed, go in the wrong direction for these reasons. Um, and perhaps, you know, people can respond. Perhaps you and I will change our minds about certain things. Good, but can be part of a productive historical process. But to say, because in the past, some good things came out of these revolutionary movements, now that's going to be the case as well. So let's just let them pass would be very much, I know that's not what you're saying, but that, I've heard some people suggest something like that. And I think that would be very much the wrong consequence, to, uh, the wrong upshot to take. Okay, so you're... The student that criticized the the play for discriminating against children that didn't have their own rooms, that habit of critiquing everything, of tearing down without building, in some way that comes straight from Foucault. Because as you point out, Foucault's whole ethos is criticize everything, criticize every ideology that is a meta narrative. Do not try to replace it with your own because your own will be just as bad. That's sort of the what one gets if one is a, a, a Foucault devotee. That's a problem because it doesn't actually allow you to organize. If you have a, an activist bent, if you want to change the world, Foucault only gives you the, the tools with which to critique the world and to continue critiquing the world until you die, but not to change it or not to build something of your own. So how do we get from Foucault to build your own ideology kind of politics. And that, by the way, is why Foucault is simultaneously appealing and a little bit repellent. He's a little bit repellent because it is quite a nihilistic view of the world and our ability to make progress. And I'm ultimately more of an optimist. But there's also something sympathetic about it, because I think a lot of the simplistic nostrums of this day, he would have rejected precisely for that reason. He does actually give you a little bit of skepticism towards certain forms of political bullshit uh, that has gotten lost. So the question you're asking is precisely the question that a set of post-colonial thinkers were asking themselves uh, in the 1970s. Um, you know, they came from countries that were fighting for independence or had become independent, that had to figure out how to rule themselves, what kind of ideology to adopt, that often were skeptical of the main Western traditions, including liberalism and Marxism, because they felt those were external impositions and they had in various ways justified colonial oppression. Critics of liberalism always point out that John Stuart Mill had a kind of defense of colonial rule in India. Karl Marx had a defense of colonial rule in India that actually is very, very similar to Mill's. And so they were saying, all right, how do we, how do we use those critical tools of postmodernism 
to dismantle some of the ideas that we think are bad, but in a way that's more politically fruitful, that we can actually use in a concrete political context. And so the first step here is Edward Said in Orientalism. What he says is these ideas about the East, about the Orient, that people in the West have developed over the course of decades and centuries, were a key part of justifying colonial rule. And so uncovering these ideas and why it is that the West thought of these as immature or not yet capable of political self-governance can help us understand how colonialism persisted. And Said explicitly and repeatedly quotes Foucault positively. It's just about the only thinker he quotes positively in, in Orientalism. But he then becomes impatient with the apolitical nature of Foucault and says the point is not just to uncover those kind of discourses and the power that they played. It's to invert them. It's to actually uh, rethink the world in a way that will uh, uh, give political agency to those people who have lacked it for so long. And so that becomes the model for a politicized form of discourse analysis in which redescribing the world and imposing new categories on it, new concepts on it, new identities on it, is a key part of how you do political battle. So today, uh, you know, what it is to be an anti-racist activist may in part be to pass certain kinds of laws or advocate for certain kinds of policies. A lot of it is critiquing how some new Netflix show is inadvertently racist. Um, what it is to be a feminist may in part be to stand for abortion rights or something like that, but a lot of it is going to be celebrating or perhaps critiquing the new Barbie movie, right? So those, that is a key theme that comes out of, out of Said. Uh, the other key figure here is Gayatri Spivak, who is a literary theorist born and raised in Kolkata and in India and in Bengal, teaches like Said at Columbia University. She is a, 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 a scholar and a translator of key postmodernist and post-structuralist figures like Derrida. And she buys their critique of essentialist categories of identity, right? Along with a skepticism about all kinds of forms of truth, uh, people like Foucault are really skeptical of stable identity categories. For he's gay in our vocabulary or homosexual in our vocabulary today, he thought the idea of a homosexual or homosexuality was far too constraining a label to capture the variety of sexual experiences and he refused to think of himself as such. And so, 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 so Spivak says, look, these critiques of essentialist uh, ideas of race is right in a, at a philosophical level. There's not one experience that all members of some identity group share. There's not something objective about it. But for political purposes, it's, it's really troubling because Foucault ends up saying, you know, the proletarians, they can speak for themselves. And Spivak says, well, the subaltern, the most oppressed people in the third world, what she calls the subaltern, you know, the people in, in Kolkata who may not have been able to go to school and who have very little political resources and standing, they can't speak for themselves. Somebody needs to speak for them. And to speak for them, we need identity categories. So perhaps we, for strategic purposes, should pretend that those essentialist accounts of identity are actually right. So she coins this and she, she, she acknowledges that it's paradoxical, this idea of strategic essentialism. Again, this becomes an incredibly influential theme in progressive politics today. What is a typical sentence you hear? Race is a social construct, something with which I broadly agree. But then after sort of paying lip service to that, you go on to emphasize and to talk about the world through completely racial terms. Race is a social construct, but Coleman, on your first day at Columbia, you go over in that corner because you're black, right? The things we talked about in terms of our educational system, embrace race. Kids should think of themselves as racial beings. We need to uh, encourage them to do that so that they can have those forms of political solidarity 
while every now and again reminding them that, of course, race is a social construct, that is a very, very clear outpouring of strategic essentialism. And so I think here, you know, to answer your question, Said infuses Foucault's thinking on discourses with political agency, and Spivak infuses Foucault's skepticism about the world with these uh, ultimately very rigid identity categories. And that gets you into business. Yeah, so on language, let, let's just stick to Said and Foucault for one second before Spivak. Said develops this critique of, of language and this imperative that you can change the world by changing language in a way, right? And his critique is that the colonists have changed the world by using a set of words to, des to describe it. And we, we should change those set of words. And in doing so, we contribute to changing the world for the better. And, and that directly links up with the tendency nowadays to obsess over language. It looks like obsessing from an outsider to the ideology, at least. If you, you know, you know, if you look at the, the kind of word salad that has come to be associated with the LGBTQIA plus divided by sign, et cetera, like, right, it, it, it just gets longer and longer and longer. And from the outside, if you're not a part of this particular proto-religion, it looks insane. From the inside, they have, they have accepted that to change the world, you, you must first change language, right? And, and this is, you know, connects with, you know, BIPOC, the concept of BIPOC, POC in general, just people of color in general. None of these categories are, you know, make objective sense. And people have, people constantly, critics constantly point this out. It doesn't, it's not clear how it makes sense to link a gay person with a trans person and put them in the same bucket, given that the definitions are just different. You know, like one relates to gender identity, one the other relates to sexual orientation, which are just two different things, at least from one lens. It's not clear why they should be in the same bucket. Not at all clear why people of color should be a category, because that cleaves the world into white people on the one hand and everyone else on the other. Well, who's to say that's the, the proper categorization? You might as well say, let's have Chinese people in one category and lump all other people into another category since, since uh, they're more populous. All of these are arbitrarily correct, but we've chosen some of them in the past and, and the identity synthesis chooses others that it thinks that it feels really are the, the way to change the world for the better. So I'm curious, just like this critique of language... Foucault, the Foucault-Said critique of language is one critique of language. There's also an Orwellian critique of language, which is in, similar in the sense that it believes language can change the world. Euphemism can change the world. Totalitarian states use euphemisms to change the world and that you can't really think clearly unless you call a spade a spade, right? It's the kind of critique of language that would detest the phrase enhanced interrogation as opposed to torture. Can you sort of compare and contrast those two critiques of language? Yeah, a couple of thoughts here. I mean, so first of all, just on Foucault and 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 and, and this form of thinking about language, um, you know, this is where sort of the success of this form of politics, which actually has had a lot of impact on our world, is nearly self-validating. Right? I don't think it self-validates, but actually, truth is subjective and so on. But clearly. One of the core postmodern critiques that a lot of the time what we think of as truth just depends on who's in which social positions and uh, who exercises power. 
Uh, actually, ironically, I've become more convinced of for the last 10 or 20 years because we've all started to believe a lot of bullshit. Um, and the same way, you know, there's, there's this kind of ambivalence where Foucault inspired this attempt to reshape our social reality by uh, insisting on these terms. And, and some of that is sort of fruitless. Some of this makes people engage in word salad that might work in activist spaces, but it's completely irrelevant to everybody else. But some of it is actually very powerful. I think the idea that America is effectively divided between whites and people of color, and that that's how to understand our elections, that's how to understand our basic social conflicts and so on, has real impacts on how the Democratic Party runs its campaigns, for example. And at some level, self-sustaining. I think the category of the Asian American, which is a completely nonsensical category, if you think about the vast cultural and historical differences between India and China, has in a weird way created a reality of Asian Americans who think of themselves as standing in solidarity with each other and having commonalities, even if uh, historically they come from very, very different groups. And at the same time, somebody like Foucault would give you the tools to criticize that, right? The idea that America is fundamentally uh, to be understood as a clash between whites and people of color uh, and everything that comes with that in our current political narrative, that is something that Foucault would have immediately recognized and criticized as a grand narrative of all of the pitfalls of grand narratives. Now, you ask a really astute question about George Orwell. I was teaching a class about George Orwell recently, and I was really struck by the parallel between some of their insights. And in fact, one of my students wrote a very good paper on precisely the question you asked me about, the parallels between Orwell and, and Foucault. And Orwell, of course, got to many of these ideas uh, a few decades before Foucault and put them in more straightforward language. But Foucault is readable in himself. He's not an easy read, but, but he certainly is, 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 is in some ways a good stylist and someone who's enjoyable to read. And I wonder whether Foucault read Orwell. There must be an answer to this. And Orwell was a big enough figure that probably he did. But there may have been influence from Orwell to Foucault. I'm speculating about this, but it would be interesting to know. Um, here's some of the core similarities. The, the real fear and skepticism that the way we talk about things might obscure their true nature is shared by Orwell and Foucault. And actually the core fear about social control is shared by them. If you read 1984, the telescreen is always on. It can watch you. You never know when you're being watched. And so people are punished in the society, in a dystopian society, but Orwell uh, describes it at regularity. But most of the time, what makes them obey is the fear that they might be being watched because they never know whether they are or not. Well, what is one of the core fears that Michel Foucault has in Crime and uh, in Discipline and Punish, uh, his work on the uh, criminal justice system? Panopticon. It is the panopticon. And what is a panopticon? It is sort of solution uh, uh, suggested, designed by James Mill, in which the prison guard stands in a watchtower in the middle of a space and the cells are arranged in a hemisphere around him. And so if you're a prisoner, you never know if you're being watched right now or not. And so, yes, you might be punished for infractions, but most of the time you self-discipline and anticipatory obedience of possible punishment, of possible observation. So again, real similarity there between what Orwell and what Foucault fear. And by the way, I would argue that today 
this is part of what would make both Orwell and Foucault critics of, for lack of a better term, cancel culture, critics of the kind of way in which on platforms like Twitter, we, we punish each other for, for transgressions. We never know where the line is that might get you punished. Even a like of a tweet might be crossing the line. And so you're continually worried about, you're continually second-guessing yourself what might get you in trouble. And so better stay very far away from the line in an act of anticipatory obedience. I think both or, you know, Orwell would think of that as a strange uh, form of a telescreen. Foucault would think of that as a strange form of digital panopticon. Uh, but, but they both, I think, within their own language, would, would end up being worried about the same thing. So is it fair to say that maybe a core difference between them is that Orwell believed in the possibility of real moral progress and Foucault was skeptical of that? Yes. Like In other I words, like right. Orwell thought that when you stripped away the euphemism, the totalitarian euphemism, and called a spade a spade, and uh, you, you had a chance of actually improving society, and that that was an important thing to do. And Foucault was just waiting for the new kind of oppression at the end of that process, right? I think that's right. I think the, the critique of totalitarian excesses in a society was in certain respects shared. And Foucault, by the way, who made many wrong political calls in his life and some really disgusting political calls in his life, was one of the few French leftists who actually supported Solidarność, the Polish trade union movement that challenged the communist regime. But Foucault did not really believe in an affirmative project of building a more just society. That's what fundamentally put him apart, for example, from Noam Chomsky with whom he had a famous debate in the early 1970s. Uh, and that's what made Chomsky tell me on my podcast that Foucault was one of the most amoral, not immoral, but one of the most amoral people he'd ever met. He still, 50 years later, seemed shocked by Foucault. Well, Orwell in that respect is much more on the side of, of Chomsky or of you and me, I think. Strange list of people to mention in one breath. But, but of people who say, look, we need to be really careful about how attempts to build a perfect world can actually build a terrible and dystopian world. But the right response to that is not to give up on historical progress. It is to be skeptical and independent-minded, but to fight for actually living up to our principles more fully. And that certainly is where Orwell ended up, and that's where I stand. That's, I believe, where you stand. For sure, yep. Okay, so, yeah, so let's talk about the, the social construct paradox. This is something that I talk about in my upcoming book, and um, I, I, I wish I had read your download of strategic essentialism before I'd written my book, but it's always struck me and and I think uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams and others as a strange paradox, which is that you get usually the hallmark of believing something is a social construct is that you take the norm surrounding that construct less seriously. So for, for instance, if you believe gender is a social construct, the hallmark of that belief is you're, you're going to be very loose about things like only women should wear dresses. You're going to laugh at that. Well, why can't men wear dresses? Only only girls should like pink. What are you talking about? You know, like like whatever you want. Into Miami. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It would be very strange to encounter a person that, you know, had gender as a social construct on their t-shirt and then proceeded to police the rules of gender with the zeal of a convert. And it would be, it would even be weird if such a person were policing a strange set of rules around gender, right? It wouldn't even have to be the traditional rules of a woman in the kitchen and, and the man brings home the bacon. It, really, any set of rules of the form, men should be like this, women should be like that, would cut against this person's claim to believe gender is a social construct. What you have in the case of race is precisely the people most likely to say race is a social construct are the same people that tend to police the rules 
of race with, with the zeal of a convert. They're precisely the people that will say, oh, well, you're not Mexican, so you can't open a Mexican restaurant. Or there's, there's no context in which, you know, white people can e even quote the N-word, right? That, that is a very strict racial rule. Uh, you should not try to imitate people of other races, you, you know. So you get the precise, the re precisely the reverse of the expectation. And that's always kind of puzzled me until I read your book and realized that there was a, you know, there's a, an origin to the idea that you can, you can solve that paradox in a way. So I guess you mentioned strategic essentialism, but in your book, you also mentioned that, that uh, Spivak herself ended up sort of souring on how strategic essentialism played out. So maybe you can describe that a little bit. Yeah. So I think just to make explicit what I think the solution to that paradox is, which had always puzzled me as well until I read Spivak, it's that in the worst forms of it, and again, I don't think Spivak herself is guilty of this, it's just a form of lip service, right? Like it's basically falling into a tribalist instinct to essentialize people, to say, if you're black and I'm white, we're really different kinds of creatures and let's live the social world in accordance with that. But because you recognize that, uh, A, that's exactly what people on the far right believe and how they maneuver in the world, and B, there's these compelling philosophical criticisms of whether, for example, there's a biological basis to race, you need something that gives you a pretext for being able to basically operate in that way. And that is this lip service we pay to race, of course, it's a social construct. And just by sort of invoking that, these, of course, I'm not an idiot. I'm not unsophisticated. I'm aware of all these critiques. Then you have sort of the green light to, to, to go and indulge that instinct. And when Spivak started to recognize that this is how her ideas were being used, she grew to be quite skeptical of them. So she, you know, saw the, the Hinduist movement in, you know, Hindutva in, in India gain political power. Uh, people like Narendra Modi indulging in those essentialist forms of identity. And that is one of the things that made her say, I sort of don't want to use the term strategic essentialism anymore because she says something like, you know, often that's become the union ticket uh, to basically just making essentialist claims. Right. She says, my term has become this kind of carte blanche that people use in order to be able to basically indulge in all the kind of vulgar essentialism that I was always worried about. And she has some great critiques for academic life in the United States as well. Uh, you know, a tea waller in India is somebody who sells tea on the, on the street, and she mocks the humorlessness of what she calls the identity wallers in American universities. Okay, so... Uh, how might Foucault critique intersectionality if he were alive today? Well, let's get out on the page sort of what intersectionality is, first of all. Uh, and there's different ways of thinking about intersectionality. So sort of the next step after thinkers we, we, we've talked about really is the rise of critical race theory. Uh, so we start in Paris in the 1950s and we go to you know, various countries, for, for many of them based in New York and the, the post-colonial movement from the 1970s. And now we're really in, in, firmly in the United States. The founder of critical race theory is a really interesting African-American lawyer called Derek Bell, who uh, does heroic work for the NAACP, helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions in the American South and beyond in the 1960s, but comes to believe that that was effectively a mistake. He observes 
uh, in some understandable ways. He observes that, uh, or he has some understandable crit- criticisms. Uh, he observes that many of the clients he, 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 he argues for want to attend a better high school, but by the time that they win those cases, they've already graduated, right? So they're not going to get anything from that lawsuit. Some of the schools that are integrated get very poor resources and some of the black students end up being discriminated against. And so uh, that doesn't provide the quality education that black parents obviously sought for their children. But, but Belvin goes so far as to explicitly in his first seminal academic article agree with segregationist, conservative, southern senators who say, you know, these lawyers like Bell, they weren't really arguing for the interests of their clients. Those just the pretext to impose this ideology of desegregation on us. And Bell himself says, you know, perhaps in some context, Bell, Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake. Perhaps we should have actually fought effectively for, for schools that are separate but and it's worth reminding people that when Brown was, uh, when the, the, that decision was handed down, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a scathing op-ed in the Orlando Sentinel criticizing its logic, um, saying essentially that she and many other people were very proud of their all-black schools. Not all of them performed poorly, and some were the locus of their communities. And there were, uh, in, in fact, my grandmother went to um, M Street School, uh, later called Dunbar High School, which famously in segregated D.C. sometimes outperformed and outscored some of the white high schools in its uh, in the same city. Yeah, and so Bell is in some ways basing himself in in that tradition, and he's using those arguments to really reject root and branch the civil rights movement. Right, so he ends up saying, you know, he mocks, "We shall overcome the, the civil rights era." Song he says, "We must finally reject the quote." defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And today we have these debates about critical race theory and they're kind of dumb because on the right, a lot of the time people call anything CRT, including thinking critically about the race, the role that race plays in our society in some contexts, including teaching kids about slavery in school and so on. But then as a result, when you listen to MSNBC or something, they think, well, all that critical race theory is, is wanting to teach kids about the existence of slavery in schools and not embracing the lost uh, cause uh, myth and not claiming that there's no racism in our society. today. No, 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 no. The key theorists of critical race theory, Derek Bell and later Kimberly Crenshaw, would be offended by that or should be offended by that characterization of CRT. Bell explicitly said his mission was to puncture and to oppose the pieties of the civil rights movement. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw ends up saying in an article celebrating the 20th anniversary of CRT that CRT, the, the core principles of CRT are fundamentally at odds with the political philosophy of Barack Obama. Right. Um, right. So, 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 so here we get some more of the themes that end up being really relevant today. The rejection of universalist solutions, the idea that to make progress, you have to treat people separately, that you have to fund black schools better than they were in the segregation, but that perhaps black schools are a better solution than integrated schools. The idea of the permanence of racism, that America never really makes any progress. The Brown versus Board was really just in the interest of whites, and that's the only reason why it happened. And then you get hints of Foucault in that as well with the... yes. Lack of skepticism of progress and, and the possibility of progress. And institutionally, just for the people who are sort of following the implicit debate about whether it's cultural Marxism or whether it's rooted in postmodernism, all of critical race theory uh, starts in American law schools within the subfield of critical legal studies, which is explicitly the application of postmodern ideas to American law. Uh, you know, actually judges don't rule uh, on the basis of doctrine and precedent. They just are trying to put their interests in place. And so all of those grand opinions we should just reject as, as, as hogwash. 
quick race viewers come and say, that's basically the right way of thinking about this, except you critical legal studies guys, mostly white guys, you don't think about race enough. So we want to use those tools and apply them to race. And that's what critical race theory becomes. And so again, very far from Foucault, but deeply in conversation with postmodernism and derived from it. Uh, Crenshaw comes in and she has this idea of intersectionality, which in its original uh, formulation is relatively straightforward and sensible. It's basically what social scientists today would call an interaction effect. If you go outside and you're not wearing an umbrella, uh, but it doesn't rain, you don't get wet. If it rains and you're wearing an umbrella, you don't get wet. If it rains and you don't wear an umbrella, the combination of those two factors means you might get drenched. Right. What Crenshaw is saying is that in a factory of General Motors in Michigan, for example, you know, they, they didn't hire white women for a long time and they started hiring them. They didn't hire black men for a long time and they started hiring them. I mean, years after that, they finally started to hire some black women as well. When there was a recession and it was first in, first out, all the black women got fired. And they rightly said, hey, we're only getting fired because of historic discrimination. We couldn't have had this job longer than we did. A judge says, well, civil rights legislation says a protected category is women. You're not women. Protected category is black people. Sorry, sorry. let me say this again. A protected category says women, but other women aren't being discriminated against. A protected category says black people, but black guys aren't being discriminated against. So you don't have a leg to stand on. And Crenshaw rightly says, well, hang on a second. But discrimination suffered in this context by black women is not just the arithmetic sum of the discrimination suffered by women or black people. It goes beyond that in a kind of interaction effect kind of way. And that is intersectionality, right? That then gets reinterpreted in much broader ways. Um, Crenshaw herself says, you know, sometimes when I see uh, intersectionality today, I think, oh, I wonder whose intersectionality that is. And when I see that they're quoting me, I'm like, that's not my intersectionality. That's not what I meant by intersectionality. And that tends to be two ideas. One, that you stand at a different intersection of identities to me, and so therefore I'm not going to be able to understand you. But if we stand at different intersections of identity, it's impossible for us to really truly understand each other, and so we have to defer moral judgment to each other and perhaps delegate political decisions to the more oppressed group. So that's one key idea here. And then the other key idea is that because all forms of oppression are interlinked, you uh, have to fight against all of them at the same time in order to be an activist in good standing. And so if you want to be a feminist arguing for equal pay, you also have to agree with activist groups on their view of Israel-Palestine. You also have to agree with uh, the trans movement on same-sex spaces. You also have to agree with whatever else. And so very briefly, I think now you really have the core themes, right? The rejection of truth in uh, Foucault, the politicized discourse analysis in Said, the embrace of strategic essentialism in Spivak, the rejection of universalism and this proud pessimism that uh, there's never any progress in Bell, the interpretations of intersectionality as meaning we can't understand each other if we stand at different intersections of identity and any good activist has to oppose everything at the same time, really raising the entry ticket into progressive uh, organizations. Those are the main themes of the, of the identity synthesis. Okay, so now that we've assembled all the stones of Thanos... What would, uh, yeah, so back to my question, what, how do you think Foucault would critique intersectionality as a, as a meta-narrative? What would he identify as wrong with it, in your view? That's a, kind of an impossible question to answer, but... No, I think it's a good question. I think he would say two things, uh, at least when we're talking about intersectionality, not in the sense that Crenshaw originally defined it, but in the sense that it's really influential today. I think to the first, he would say there's a 
sort of poor metaphysics at play here, which says, you know, how, you know, who I, Foucault, really am as a homosexual and who you, Coleman, are as a heterosexual. And so these categories are stable and make sense. And all homosexuals are going to have similar experiences and all heterosexuals are going to have similar experiences. And so therefore, I cannot understand you truly and you cannot understand me truly. And he would say, but I don't, I don't self-identify as a homosexual. I think that these categories are much more complicated. And perhaps two, one, one particular homosexual, one particular heterosexual might have more in common with each other than either of them has with other people that are part of their identity groups. But because the boundaries of these groups are somewhat arbitrary and socially constructed. And so, uh, you know, to think that either homosexuals should naturally understand each other because they're all part of the same group or that members of one group can't understand members of the other group because they're members of these completely different groups, that is buying into a naive idea of who we are and what defines us and so on. And then in terms of the second interpretation of intersectionality, that all these forms of oppression go together and so on, I think you'd be sympathetic to some of that. But you might say that, you know, the idea that we know how to make progress on when any one of those things is dubious. And the idea that we know exactly the grand narrative of, um, you know, how to build the just world across all of those domains. And we should uncritically accept the claims that other people make that without thinking uh, through it ourselves is the opposite of a kind of critical spirit that we should affect. And in that ways, I think it is interesting that even though the identity synthesis originates in a rejection and in a concern about grand narratives, it becomes one of the most dominant grand narratives of our time. And Foucault certainly would have recognized that. So you trace the kind of history of the modern left through these, mainly through these five figures. Would it be possible to do the same with, with the right? Could a story be told of the modern right that would have a, an analogous story in terms of like a synthesis of thinkers from the past 80 to 100 years? Or is the modern right just something else entirely? Is it sort of bereft of new ideas, bereft of of sort of intellectual forefathers and, and foremothers in the same way? Great question. Let me be a little bit more specific. I think what I'm telling is the, is the origin of one political tradition on the left. Frankly, there's other political traditions on the left as well. So I don't think it's possible to tell a coherent story about the origins of all of the left, right? Uh, it's possible to tell a coherent story about the, about the origins of this particular tradition within the left. And I think then I would say something similar about the right. Uh, that there's some traditions on the right that have a certain amount of internal coherence. And that, by the way, is one of my arguments. These ideas are worth taking seriously because they come from serious thinkers and they do have a coherence, right? Some people reject them as just completely unserious or they don't have a core or there's, there's no way in which they hang together. You know, all political traditions are somewhat arbitrarily mapped onto each other, right? There's never just, they could always have coalesce in slightly different ways. But I think this is no less serious a political tradition than many, many others, right? And, and again, I think that's true when you think of certainly a sort of a more traditional conservative ideology on the right. You can tell a story about its origins that runs through whatever, you know, Burke, through Hayek, through whichever other figures you'd want to pick out for that. I think that there is a post-liberal tradition on the right, especially the Catholic integralists, that probably, uh, you know, you can construct some kind of coherent intellectual history for. I haven't done that work, so, you know, I might be off and when people I, I mentioned that, that probably would run through um, some of the sort of more right-leaning German idealists, through de Maistre, through, you know, whatever other Catholic figures of the 20th century. I think it might not be possible for populism because I think populism at, at its heart is a form of politics, 
uh, that basically says, I alone represent the people and the enemy who disagrees with me is illegitimate, is an enemy. And that can be filled with very different kinds of content, which is what explains why people like Trump and Modi and Erdogan, who have very different ideological beliefs and come from different uh, traditions in that kind of way, yet end up having real similarity in terms of their political style and then effect on politics. So I wouldn't say that it's true of all traditions, but but yeah, I think broadly speaking, you could do, you know, you a derivation of- a libertarian one as well. Yeah. Yeah. But it strikes me that, the, I mean, the, the identity synthesis one is the only one that begins recently and has major thinkers within, say, your lifetime at the very least, in my lifetime, right? I think libertarianism is probably relatively recent as well. I mean, there is laissez-faire economic thinkers in the 19th century, but as a self-conscious ideological movement, uh, libertarianism really coalesces you know, after Robert Nozick publishes Anarchy, State, and Utopia. So I think of these different traditions, that may be one of the more recent ones. Uh, but yes, I agree with you that there is, that this is, look, I mean, one of, the, one of the answers to the question, why did I write this book? I mean, there's many answers, but one of them is, you know, I've, I, there's only so many damn articles I can write about populism and Donald Trump and only so many damn books I can write about it. A lot of people have not written good work on that. This is a genuinely new ideology that is coalesced, that is going to be a major competitor for how to think about the world. And nobody has done the damn work to actually understand it in a serious way, to understand where it comes from, but then also to critique many of its applications. And that was an interesting intellectual task. And one of the important criteria, not the only criterion, but one of the important criteria for me and what kind of work to do is where am I going to learn something? What's actually intellectually interesting? And precisely for this reason, because I think it is a major new ideological tradition that's actually quite recent and where people haven't put in the work to understand it, this was a fascinating book for me to write. So what is wrong with Christopher Rufo's account? And to remind people, they can go back and listen to that episode if they want, but his account heavily weights Herbert Marcuse and uh, critical theory heavily weights the more violent political activism of the 1970s, the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground and the, the, the so-called long march through the institution whereby the terrorists, essentially, the terrorists and, and violent activists decided to stop using violence and, you know, become computer programmers and um, bureaucrats and play the long game. And we're now seeing the, the fruits of the long game borne out. So there's certain elements of that where we have overlap in my chapter. So by the way, we've basically just talked about one quarter of a book so far and, and that may be all we have time for, which is fine, but I just want to sort of flag that there's all these other parts of the book that are, that are in similar depth. So, so the first part of the book is saying, you know, where do the ideas what we're talking about actually come from? The second ask, okay, how do they go from being pretty influential in universities in about 2010 to really dominant in a lot of our social and cultural institutions by about 2020? How did that happen? The third part, which I think would be of great interest to your listeners as well, is a critique of the main application of these ideas to various fields. How have these ideas started to influence how we think about our ability to understand each other? The general pool of suspicion we now cast about anything we call cultural appropriation. Why is that a mistake? Why should we actually believe in our ability to influence each other culturally and that being a positive hallmark of a vibrant society? Why do we need to defend laws for free speech and a culture of free speech? And why are the historical arguments for free speech not the right ones? Why should we emphasize not the positive things that flow from free speech, but at least as much the negative things that flow from not having 
free speech? How should we think about progressive separatism in education? And why are many of the race-sensitive and identity-sensitive public policies that are now just becoming stunted parts of a policy tool uh, wrong-headed? And finally, uh, perhaps that will get to, you know, what is the core of this ideology and what is a sensible humanist, liberal, universalist response to those so just to just to put that sort of as a, as a, as a, as, a, as a pin. Um, so in the chapter on free speech, for example, I discuss uh, how Marcuse's uh, distinctions between sort of repressive tolerance and free tolerance paves the way for many of the critiques of free speech, where he says, you know, when you allow free speech that argues for oppressive societies, that's not real free speech. The only free speech, the only real free speech, is things that argue for a freer society. Uh, and that freer society uh, has been modeled, by the way, uh, in uh, Cuba and uh, China recently. So I agree, for example, there that our thinking on free speech is influenced by somebody like Herbert Marcuse. I also agree with Chris Rufo that this idea of a march through the institutions is relevant. I think he makes it more purposive. People lay down arms and in a very purposive way go into these institutions, subvert them. I think of it as a more organic process where people steeped in the ideas we've been talking about at elite American universities decide, well, I love these ideas and that was fun, but I don't want to be a professor. I want to go and make some money at Google or perhaps I want to be you know, an activist at ACLU or something like that. Go into those work places and then really manage to, to, to change their cultures. So we have some amount of overlap there. Uh, but the difference fundamentally is about how to understand the nature of the ideology and where its claims come from. The tradition of critical theory is critical of liberalism, as is the identity synthesis. But other than that, there's really few similarities. First of all, it has always been based primarily on economics. When you look at the people who actually stand in the tradition of critical theory, who are the students of the students of people like Horkheimer and Adorno and Yes Marcuse today, they are really upset about the marketization of society, about the lack of public space and uh, public institutions. And many of them, just sociologically, hate identity politics. I really foul mouthed about it when you get a beer with them. There's a fundamental difference in the promise of the Marxist tradition and the promise or the lack of promise in the identity synthesis. Marxists say uh, we want to build a society in which the proletariat becomes the universal class, wins the final victory, and therefore there's no longer any class distinctions. The key prism for understanding the world dissolves in the utopia we're going to build in such a way that the workers of the world have united and we're all brethren. As you know very well, Coleman, the thing that most provokes members of the tradition that I talk about, the people who fall and pray to the identity trap, is to say, well, the America we should build is one in which it becomes less important, less salient that you are black and I'm white. Right? What we want to build is a society in which we've overcome prejudice in such a way that those things become irrelevant. No, uh, this tradition has given up on that uh, key impetus in key ways. So there's a really important structural difference in the kind of society that they want to argue for. And then just as a matter of intellectual history, I think I can go through the story we've told in the first half of this conversation and you see at each point emerging one of these themes and you take those seven themes together and you get a lot of what you do today. You read critical theory, whether it's main thinkers of a Frankfurt school or whether it is critical theorists working with tradition today, you don't see the echoes of the kind of politics we're talking about. It simply isn't there. You can't map one onto the other. You're looking in the wrong place. Okay, so let's talk about um, 
your sort of different defenses of free speech than, than usually get reiterated in these kinds of conversations. What do you feel you have to add? And free speech is a th- something I've talked about a lot on this podcast. So I think my listeners will be familiar with some of the standard arguments. You know, one that I often make is that, you know, free speech was one of the only principles defending all of the activists that the identity synthesis would have would have identified with in the past. For instance, Ida, Ida B. Wells, the most I think unambiguously the most important anti-lynching activist in American history. Her newspaper was named the Memphis Free Speech. And so so what do you feel you're adding here to the sort of free speech defense conversation? Yeah. So look, I don't want to say that the arguments I'm making, I'm making for the first time. I think they're, they're in line with what you're saying. But a lot of the time in the public space, when we talk about free speech, we base it on John Stuart Mill, who's one of my favorite thinkers, who in On Liberty talks predominantly about the good things that flow from free speech, right? If you have free speech, then uh, you can preserve uh, the truth. Um, he has a, He's not naive about this. He'll say, oh, there's no free marketplace of ideas. This is silly. He said, no, the point is that that argument might not win out in that moment, but some people can hear it. And those ideas and those insights can persevere through the generations and perhaps at a later point they can win out. Mill says that it would be bad to ban even bad ideas because uh, if nobody ever disagreed with us, we'd have to have devil's advocates because that's what we need in order to hold truths uh, as living truths rather than as dead dogmas. And if they become dead dogmas, by the way, then it's dangerous because tomorrow in a month or in a year, somebody might disagree with us and we're not going to have resources to argue against them. I think all of that is right. It's important. Uh, But I can see why some people say, you know what, when there's people arguing for really terrible things in social media and being really nasty and just hateful, right, and racist and homophobic and all of those things, when the stakes of politics are really high, are these good things important enough that that's really what it's about? I disagree with that point, but I think there's a more robust answer we can give to it. And that is to say that precisely in moments when the stakes of politics are really high, precisely in moments when our society is particularly divided, free speech is what we need. And the first part of this is basically what you said, which is, by definition, the people who are going to be making decisions in society are the people who are powerful. Who is going to be a member of the federal government censorship bureau? Who's going to be a member of the, you know, Silicon Valley Speech Facilitation Committee or whatever they would call it? It's not going to be the most marginalized. It's going to be the people who are powerful, by definition. That is the reason why it's called the the, the Memphis Free Speech uh, publication. That's the reason why Frederick Douglass said that free speech is, 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 is the dread of tyrants, right? Is the thing that abolitionists most needed in order to be able to, to, to make their case. And here there's a really weird sociological confusion that I think a lot of leftists have, because a lot of these debates originated on college campuses, where it's plausible to think that, you know, the college speech code at Smith College or at Harvard is going to protect progressive beliefs and make taboo non-progressive beliefs. Somehow, with at the scale of a whole society, we would implement uh, a censorship that's also going to favor those ideas. I, I think that's really uh, naive, right? And we're seeing that, by the way, in Florida and lots of other ways as well. We certainly would see it if some like Recep Erdogan, who's completely squashed the space for free speech in Turkey, not a very progressive politician. The second point is goes perhaps a little bit further about the stakes of elections, right? The, the, the fundamental political institution at the heart of democracy, not the only necessary one, but the fun, fundamental one, is that when we have a disagreement about who should rule and what we should do, elections determine uh, that disagreement, at least for the time being, right? That's how we settle that dispute. 
Well, that means that the people who are in power need to be willing to go home. And we've seen recently that they're not always willing to go home. And that is a huge danger to our democratic institutions. Now, one of the reasons why they might historically be willing to go home is that they feel like, hey, I might be out of office for four years, but I'm still going to be able to argue my case. We might win again in four years. And so even though it's painful to lose an election, it's painful to see these people we dislike rule for four years, we have a chance to come back. But once you give uh, powerful institutions and particularly government institutions the right to censor certain points of view, people might think, you know, the cost of going home is just too high. So I'm going to stay, fight to stay in power by any means possible. And then the third point is that free speech is a kind of safety valve against bad policy, right? The stakes are high in any policy area. If we fail to green light the right drug, the right pharmaceutical drug, it might stop lots of people from having a life-saving treatment, right? And yet we say, you know, we need some regulation of drugs and perhaps sometimes, you know, the FDA is not going to improve something, right? So, so why is speech special, even though it too has these high stakes? Well, it's because free speech is what we need to be self-correcting all these other policy areas, Right. If your drug is turned down from the FDA, you should at least be able to raise a stink on it if you think there is a mistake. You should at least be able to talk about how important it is to reverse that policy decision. So in other areas, if something goes wrong, free speech provides us a way of continuing the conversation about it. If you lose free speech, we also lose the tool to self-correct in these other areas of public policy. Okay, so finally, what do you, uh, what do you feel is the best strategy to use to push back against the creep, some which has been completed in certain institutions of uh, the identity synthesis into, into society is, is, the, is the right strategy to, you know, pass anti-CRT laws like um, Rufo, Rufo has been involved in? Is the right strategy to sort of make, try to create classically liberal institutions and assert those values? Uh, what do you see as the path forward? Yeah, let me say a few things on that. I mean, the first is that we need to really understand the core of this ideology and how to argue against it at the highest level. And I think we've done a lot of that work in this conversation. But I, I just want to do a little bit more of it at, at an abstract level. We've talked about the origin of these ideas. We've talked about some of the applications of it to areas like free speech. We could have talked about cultural appropriation and standpoint epistemology and progressive separatism and all of those things. Uh, but you can also do a rational reconstruction, uh, what philosophers call, right, really boiling down this ideology to its core principles. And I think there's three core principles that advocates of the identity synthesis want us to believe. Number one, that the key prism for understanding society is to look at it through race, gender, and sexual orientation. But that is the fundamental way to understand our interaction today or to understand a historical event like a revolution or anything else. The second claim is that, as somebody like Bell would say, the grand ideals of the United States Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, of the 14th Amendment, those are just attempts to pull the wool over our eyes. The real social function is not to limit or fight against, but to perpetuate forms of racial and sexual discrimination by making us blind to their reality. And so therefore, the third claim, what do we do? We have to rip up those universal values and neutral principles. They are the real enemy and make how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us more explicitly dependent on the particular identity groups into which we're born. And I think that there's a very straightforward and coherent response that philosophical liberals can give to that, which is number one, of course, we have to be attuned to race and gender and sexual orientation in the way that that sometimes, uh, perhaps often structures uh, discrimination and social disadvantage in our society. But that is not the only prism to understand society. In other contexts, we might want to look at class. In other contexts, we might want to look at 
religion or how people behave or people's aspirations or the values we share or all kinds of other things. As Jonathan Haidt would say, it's a mistake to be monomaniacal in our prism of a world. Let's let particular situations guide us towards what prism to use rather than march in with a prism that supposedly explains everything, the way that Marxists used to do with class and the way that today advocates of the identity synthesis do with identity categories. Secondly, actually, the activists who insisted that they gain the recognition, that they be included in the universal principles that have been part of America since our founding, are who allowed us to make the greatest progress. Frederick Douglass was not naive about the hypocrisy of his compatriots who celebrated the 4th of July was, while slavery was on the book. He was very aware of it and he called them out on it. He didn't say, so go stuff your constitution. He said, by what right are you excluding us from them? If you actually want to celebrate those values, fight for abolition. Right? Martin Luther King did not say, uh, let's rip up the fraudulent check that the Bank of Justice wrote us. He said, let's make sure that the Bank of Justice finally honors it. And that is what has allowed us to make tremendous progress over the last centuries. That is why America today, for all of its flaws, is a more just place, a less racist place than it was in 1850 or 1950. And so finally, therefore, what should we do? Well, we should stand with those luminaries in American history to demand that we live up more fully to our values rather than getting rid of them and ripping them up. So the first point I would say is, this is the language we need to speak. These are the principles we need to embrace in order to argue against those ideas. And this is ultimately a battle for hearts and minds. It is a fight over the kind of ideology that is going to be embraced at the highest echelons of our society. And we need the best arguments for that. The second thing I will say is that we do need to fight against ways in which the ideology we've been talking about has become enshrined in unfair ways. Uh, the fact that so many people are afraid to speak up against those ideas in many contexts, the ways in which sometimes uh, institutions use coercive force to get people to uh, 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 pay lip service to them. And so opposing those liberal laws and customs is perfectly appropriate. But where uh, Ron DeSantis has gone in Florida, for example, genuinely, when you look at those pieces of legislation, is going well beyond that. Rather than opposing the imposition of one set of illiberal norms, it is substituting them with a different set of illiberal norms that it in turn is trying to impose on those spaces. Public universities in Florida are no longer allowed to teach anything that's considered critical race theory or identity politics. So the course that I teach on these subjects in which, as I was saying, I, I, I assign people who deeply disagree with those ideas, your, your, your writings, sometimes my writings, other people's writings, right? But I also assign Bell and Crenshaw and so on, because that's part of what it is to have a genuine debate, would likely be illegal under current law in Florida. And so uh, you must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That to me is the reactionary trap, where rather than being guided by your own values, you start to be guided by opposing anything that the people you don't like do and just, just emulating the methods and saying the opposite of whatever they're saying. No, we need, to be, uh, uh, we need to reclaim the moral high ground. We need to say, hey, we shouldn't be ashamed of the things we're arguing for. We shouldn't be afraid to argue for them. We should take the fight into all of these institutions. But we're doing that while proudly representing our most profound values, insisting that this is how we build a better world. I think that's a great note to end on. So the book is The Identity Trap. There's a lot in there we didn't get to, and I really encourage people to buy it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's really the best intellectual history and, and path forward um, on, this, on this topic. So thank you so much, Yasha. And um, it's been a pleasure. 
Thank you, Carmen. This is amazing. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.